Welcome to the Real Estate Explainer podcast, where we talk about anything and everything real estate. I'm your host, Brian Kazula, and today we've got Joe Vyrie with US Tax Advisors Group talking about cost segregation studies. Hey, Joe, uh, just wanted to say thanks for jumping on the podcast today with me. Um, you know, a lot of people do have questions regarding cost segregation. So I just want to ask you, what is cost segregation? Oh, great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Uh, let me start by dumbing everything down. Basically, every taxpayer will have what's known as gross taxable income. And so you pay your taxes on your net taxable income. So obviously, if you have a gross taxable income of $100,000 and you have expenses of $50,000, now you've just reduced your, your taxable income by 50% because you have 50% of, of expenses. What depreciation is, is depreciation is an expense for those that own uh, investment real estate, whether residential or commercial real estate. What we do in cost segregation is we accelerate the depreciation. So if you do not do cost segregation, if you don't accelerate your depreciation, then you're using what's termed as straight line. And so you take whatever the building basis is, and the building basis is what you paid for the building, not what it's worth, what you paid for the building when you bought the building, and less the land, because land is not a depreciable asset. So that is your building basis. And if you did straight line, you would take that building basis, and if it's residential, you would divide by 27 and a half years. If it's a commercial property, you divide by 39 years. So you see you're getting a very small bit of that depreciation expense if you use straight line versus if you accelerate the depreciation expense, what we're doing is we're peeling off the personal property on the interior of the building. Personal property for examples would be cabinets, countertops, window cover, coverings, specialty lighting, flooring. And we're also peeling off, uh, that's five-year property, and furniture fixtures could be five or seven-year. And then on the outside, the land improvements is 15-year property. And so what we, what we do is when we do the acceleration is we're giving the owner a, about, a say, 20 to 35%, 40% maximum probably on their uh, building basis that we can accelerate. And that expense now will be against their, their taxable income in the year that they do the study. So, for example, again, if you had $100,000 in taxable income and I gave you a $40,000 accelerated depreciation, you would reduce that year, the year you did the study, you'd reduce it by $40,000, which is a huge, huge benefit. And obviously, we want our clients to take that benefit and buy more real estate or fix up their, their properties. So that's the whole high-level overview of what cost segregation is. So when you're doing a cost segregation study, you're taking an investment property and you're going in and you're carving out the individual components of it, and then you're accelerating the de depreciation on those different components. So instead of taking them over 27 and a half years or 39 years, you're pulling those assets forward to, I think you said, either five years, seven years, or 15 years to accelerate the depreciation. So it's strictly for investors. Can you do this on a primary residence? No, the primary residence is not a depreciable asset. All right, very interesting. What other, what other types of properties can you do cost segregation studies on? What type of properties do you see you know, just across the board? 
Yeah, I've been doing this since 2007. And I doubt if there's very many property types I've not performed cost segregation on. Uh, so that probably gives you the answer already, which is basically any yep. type of investment property. Now, you're not going to get a high acceleration return, rate of return on a property uh, that, for example, is a warehouse. Because what is a warehouse? It's four four walls in a roof. Uh, there's not a lot that goes on in the interior of a, of a, of a warehouse. Where the, the, the value, though, comes in the 15-year property, because most warehouses will have some sort of land improvements. They'll have parking lots. They'll have curbing. They'll have gutters. They'll have specialty lighting. They'll have probably some sort of landscaping. So even in a property like that, where I'm not going to find very much benefit, I'm still going to find enough that's going to make it worthwhile. So even if I say on a million dollar industrial building, we find 15, 18%, that's $150,000, $180,000 of additional expense they're going to get in the tax year that they do the property. So I would say that any type of property, one should at least get the first step, which is an estimate from U.S. Tax Advisors Group Incorporated. So when you're looking at them, you're looking at all different types of properties. There are four investment properties. Now, I'm just trying to picture where where are you where are you doing the studies? Do you do you uh, look at specific markets? Or are you looking across the United States? We're a nationwide company, and and uh, so it, it depends on uh, the owner and and the, our communication with them. We can I probably have done cost segregation in every state in the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. So we don't care where the property is located. We have staff everywhere on the properties in the United States. So it really makes no difference where the property is located as far as us doing the cost segregation. It will affect some of the results we find because, you know, construction in um, San Diego is different than construction in Maine because you have a lot of the weather, you know, the, the, the foundation is going to be thicker, et cetera, et cetera. So it will impact the results, but not enough for anybody to say, I'm not going to do a cost segregation in Maine, or I'm, I'm not going to do a cost segregation in San Diego. And then what about the, the price? What are you looking for when you're looking for uh, the dollar amounts? Are you only looking for the 10 or the $30 million properties, the shopping centers? What's the price range that you're typically looking for when you're considering doing a cost segregation study? Well, that's a good good question. Uh, when I first started, you are right. We would look at big buildings. We'd look at downtown LA, downtown Chicago. We would look at you know, $30 million, $40 million buildings. But in recent years, we've been able to use automation to reduce the engineering time and to make it affordable uh, to do cost segregation. So if you have a smaller building that is with a basis of $750,000 or less, and I'm referring to a residential building, 750 or less, we can do what's called a modeling study, which is an analytical study. What's the advantage? We don't have to fly out to wherever, Bangor, Maine, or down to Tampa, Florida. We don't have to fly out there. So it keeps our engineering time way down, our cost way down, and we can do the modeling studies for hundreds of dollars. Our modeling fees are $625 for a current tax year a property and $675 for a look-back property. If it's a detailed engineering, meaning the basis is over the $750,000, then we are going to have to probably go out there in one way or the other to do the study. And those studies just depend on, on the building. So we like to look at the buildings before we, we quote, because we have to see what, what the engineering time is going to be on the property. But I will just tell you now, for detailed engineering, you're probably looking at a minimum of four grand on up, depending on the complexity of the building. 
All right. So on a single family residential property, about $625. On the detailed engineering studies, you're looking at something north of $4,000 or higher, depending on uh, the property itself. You know, there's been a lot of talk about short-term rentals in the market. What's your take on short-term rentals and doing cost segregation studies specifically on short-term rentals? We have tons of of short-term rental property owners. The one difference between short-term and long-term is the short-term rentals are basically considered hotels. They are commercial buildings. They are not residential. And that a lot of, of, of property owners don't get this until somebody tells them that, no, this is a hotel, not a not a, a residential. But does it really impact our work? Not really at all. So in other words, short-term re- rental owners are a great resource for us. We do a lot and it works out really well for them. The other advantage of short-term rentals is that there are different rules to be a passive versus uh, to be an active versus a passive investor. And so that's one of the main reasons why we have a lot of of investors going into short-term rentals, because if they can become an active investor, it's going to help them utilize as much depreciation as possible versus a passive investor. The reason is because passive investors, passive investments have limitations to the depreciation they take. It depends on all kinds of circumstances. We don't get involved in the circumstances. We just will ask the questions. We will give them an estimate. And we suggest they take that estimate to their accountant and say, hey, look, accountant, Mr. or Mrs. Accountant, if I'm a passive investor, is it still worth it to do? I will tell you that we have a ton of passive investors that find it's worth to do cost segregation. So are you saying not everybody qualifies to do a cost segregation study? Explain the active and passive income one more time. Okay, passive versus active. So if you're a passive investor, meaning that your primary source of your income is from real estate, you're you're obviously going to be active. There is a rule and you can Google, you know, the the rules for um for active real estate investors, but the basic one is 750 hours per year, which isn't a lot. I mean, that's like I think 20 hours per week devoted to real estate. And so that kind of question should be answered by the tax professional. But basically, if you're deriving your income from real estate, just make it simple. You're going to be a, an active investor. Passive investors have another, uh, another source of income. So let's throw one out, a doctor. A doctor's got doctor's income, and he also uh, has invested in some real estate, but his main source of income is from being a physician. So then he's a passive investor. Number one, he's not going to spend 750 hours per year on his properties, his properties. so he's going to be passive. And then we have to look at the passive limitations or his accountant will to see if it's worthwhile. But one way to get around that for married couples is what they do. And again, I'm not giving you tax advice. I'm telling you what my clients do. And what they do is they make the other partner, the other spouse, the the real estate professional, and they're the ones that spend the 750 hours per year in investing and managing and, and the upkeep on their property to get around that rule because they're filing jointly. And if they're filing jointly and the one spouse is an active real estate investor, all of the depreciation is used against both incomes, which is really dynamite. I'd like to thank our sponsor, U.S. Tax Advisors Group, a cost segregation company. To learn more about cost segregation, visit realestateexplainer.com and click on the cost segregation link on the top of the page. So you're taking a grouping approach. So you're grouping their income together. You're taking the, the real estate professional's losses from doing the cost segregation study, and then you're passing it over to help offset 
the active income or the W-2 income of the, the high income earner that's a, a W-2 earner. Yes. All right. So that's, that's certainly powerful. Are there any other, anything that we really need to look out for when we're looking at um, doing a cost segregation study? Yeah, there's four questions that I go through when I talk to, to my clients. Number one is, this may sound kind of sarcastic, but uh, it, 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 there's a reason. I ask them if they pay income tax. Uh, for whatever reason, some investors just don't know that they're not paying income tax. So I just say, did your accountant say, get out your checkbook and write a check to the IRS? If the answer is no, now why make the answer be no? Because real estate offers the investor a whole boatload of, of tax savings benefits. So I know a lot of investors that simply do not pay income tax. They do all of the, they can find enough losses, you know, the interest income, maintenance, all of these losses, and that reduces their income down to a very small amount. So you don't need to do cost segregation. Only call Joe or Brian when you actually, your accountant says, hey, you're going to have to write a check out to the IRS for 20 grand. So that's number one. Make sure that they're tax paying investors. Number two is how long are they going to hold the property? Because if you hold the property for less than two years, a year and a half to two years, I will tell you, don't do cost segregation. Because when you evaluate how much you're going to pay for the study against uh, how much depreciation recapture you're going to have to pay back if you sell the property for cash, it, then it, it may not be worth it. However, on that note, keep in mind that if you do an exchange into a new piece of real estate, you may be able to, do, to uh, effectively use cost segregation. And if you, if, it, if you pass away and it goes to your heirs, there is no depreciation recapture. It's only when you sell for cash. So if you're selling for cash, you're not going to hold the property for at least two years. I would say don't do cost segregation. The third factor is going to be a 1031 exchange. I did say that you can make cost segregation work for 1031 exchanges. However, this is complex. And what do I mean by that? I mean that um, basically on 1031 exchanges, if you, let's say, for example, you sell a property for a million dollars and you buy another property for a million dollars, it's an even exchange. I have nothing to work with because your million dollars on the relinquished building, the building you sold is going to be stuck in straight line depreciation or the method that you used before, which is going to be straight line, because I we, we just know it's going to be straight line. And so um, there's nothing. You have a million, million, there's no acceleration. But most of our clients, they trade up. They sell a building for a million. They buy another building for two million. Now I have a million dollars to work with. So I would recommend moving forward in, in doing cost segregation. Uh, that would be at your timing. So the timing on it. No, I, I think you already touched on the timing. You need to hold on to the property for at least a couple of years. You don't want to sell the property within the first two years. Really, it's for a long-term hold. And uh, yeah, I think you nailed it too. As far as the, you know, the 1031 exchange is certainly a good app, you know, a good way to dispose of your asset. And I think that that's one of those things that's so important to know when you're buying or selling property is what's the disposition strategy of that asset? What's your long-term goal? or your long-term hold strategy, are you going to sell it and pay taxes on the property? Or are you planning on buying another property in a trade up and buy a, a bigger home? Are you going to buy a bunch of homes and buy an apartment complex? Are you going to trade those up and buy a, you know, a strip mall somewhere? And then even then when you're doing that exchange and you're exchanging out of it, then what are you going to do with it? What's the end disposition? Are you going to leave it to your heirs? And then how are they going to get taxed on it? So I think that that is just a, a really uh, 
you know, important piece of uh, the total picture when you're looking at buying and selling real estate is, you know, you really need to know how you're coming into that property because typically you make money when you buy property because you're trying to buy it at a reduced rate, an under market rate. And then when you sell the property, you're trying to sell it at top dollar, but you're also trying not to get taxed at top dollar. And I just feel that the feel like the cost segregation strategy is a great way to uh, to just make the whole picture come together. And full disclosure for our listeners, I didn't bring it up on the front end because I wanted Joe to run with it. But we work together at U.S. Tax Advisors Group. I am a, a big advocate of doing cost segregation studies. And if you really want to dive more into this topic and you are interested in learning about cost segregation, I'd recommend that you schedule a call with uh, Joe directly. You could absolutely go to the website, USTAGI.com, and book a call with them, fill out the form, get a free estimate. And that's one of the things that's so important when you're, when you're looking at this. It's not just to get a done-for-you estimate. It's really to have somebody review it with you on the phone, make sure it's the right fit. And, you know, that's, I think you mentioned it before. I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, I mean, I advocate you do. It's, it's making sure that you take that estimate back to your CPA to make sure that you are really a, a passive real estate investor or you are, are an active real estate investor so that you can really take advantage of those benefits, you know, that we're able to offer. Now, if it, uh, it comes back and your CPA says it, it doesn't work because you don't pay any taxable income or for whatever the reason is, then you know you want to know that before you move forward and actually purchase the, the study to have it done. So I think that that was a, a great point and it kind of brings us uh, back full circle. One of the things I have to ask, uh, you know, because everybody likes those uh, what a big hairy stories, whatever it is, what is the, the craziest thing that you've ever seen when you were out doing a site inspection on a property, when you were doing a, a cost segregation study? And it doesn't have to be something you know wild. It certainly could be. Or you could say, what's the largest property, whatever it is, but everybody likes a, a good story. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Well, I don't know the craziest thing. You'd think that having done so many thousands of studies, which I have no clue how many I've done, and I've been involved in in since 2007, but it's, it's a ton of studies. But I think the most, probably the most memorable was the Macy's building in Union Square, downtown San Francisco, because that was a three phase project where we got in on the first phase. How, bi how big was that? I imagine, uh, I imagine the Macy's was a very large project. The whole project was 500 million. I believe what happened was, if I know this right, I think they bought the original building for 200 million. They spent a hundred million in the demolition because they repurposed the building. What they did is they changed it from being a Macy's department store into a multi-level building where they made uh, restaurants and they made uh, gyms, fitness gyms, all kinds of different. Um, they made it into like a little shopping center, if you want. And so they spent a million dollars in the demolition and they spent 200 million in building out all of the, the uh, new buildings. So what we did is we did the original um, 200 million. We did the acquisition basis on that. And then we came back and we did the dispositions because they had to rip out all. Uh, and the good thing about this client was they, they kept it as a Macy's for a year, which is key. I don't think they knew they were being that smart, but but they were that smart because now they're able to take advantage of the dispositions. So they owned it for a year. They operated it as a Macy's for a year. Then they closed it all down and they went in and they ripped out 
everything, all the way so, to the so studs. It was, so it was a $2 million acquisition. They had 200, it in service. $200 million. Sorry, $200 million acquisition. Yeah. They had it in service, so it was being used. And then after a year, they came in and spent a million dollars and demoed the interior of the building. Right. And guys, what he's talking about with dispositions is he's pulling out assets. So now he's pulling out these assets and he's throwing them away. So he's taking out the windows, they're taking out the doors, they're taking out the HVAC systems, they're remodeling, they're demoing it, but it's not just a demolition. If those assets still had 39 years or if they still had 38 years, 37 years, 36 years, they're able to take those doors and those windows and dispose of them on their fixed asset schedule, which is another benefit of doing cost segregation studies that a lot of people just aren't aware of. So sorry to interrupt, but the dispositions, um, a million dollars, $200 million acquisition. And uh, what did they do? Uh, the, the, the last one was the improvements. So we did the cost segregation. Yeah, the improvements. And so altogether, I don't remember, it was a couple of years ago, but altogether it was a six figure advantage, tax savings advantage we gave the owners of the building. Six figures, come on. Is that worth it or not? I mean, we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars to the owners of the building. So it was a, a great project to be involved in. And it was pretty fascinating. It was, it was a very cool project. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good story. And the neat thing about this, guys, is the accelerated depreciation that he's providing or the study is providing, if they don't have the income to offset it this year, it doesn't just go away. So now they're taking that accelerated depreciation, they're offsetting their taxable income on the offsetting all of their taxable income, and then they're able to push that forward into perpetuity. They're moving that until they're using up all of that depreciation. But when you're doing a cost segregation study too, you're not using all of the depreciation all at once. You're only accelerating, I think, what did you say, 20, let's call it 25% of the 25. building basis. So you still have another 75% of that building that's being depreciated over 27 and a half years or 39 years. So there's still a lot of depreciation that's helping you even after you use all of that upfront depreciation. So pretty yeah. powerful. I've heard a lot of objections throughout my years. And to be honest with you, I still hear the same objections because a lot of times accountants just don't know depreciation and they think that, for example, depreciation recapture is bad and blah, 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 blah. But, but um, most of these um, objections can be answered uh, by myself or you uh, because there really aren't a lot of reasons not to do cost segregation. I gave you the main reasons. Are there others? Of course there are. There's are some very complex structures out there. But for the most part, I would tell everybody, get an estimate and then take it to your professionals, your tax and your, your legal, and to see if it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, don't do it. Perfect. I think that wraps it up. We'll go ahead and uh, wrap up the podcast. Just wanted to say thanks for coming on. It's fun uh, to have you play along with me on the show. If anybody's looking to get an estimate, I'd say just go to the website, ustagi.com, request an estimate or schedule a call with Joe. Thank you and we'll talk to you soon. If you would like more information on Northport, visit realestateexplainer.com backslash Northport.